Well, sometimes the hardest thing in life is having to wait. <laughs> and uh, Christmas season is a time of waiting. How many of you guys have kids, presents already, asking about presents? When can I open presents? Uh, that's going to be me in a couple, couple years. But Christmas really is all about waiting patiently for something that you expect to come and sometimes things that you don't expect to come. And uh, the traditional Christian word for this season is actually the word Advent. It's a Latin word meaning the coming or arrival. It's a celebration of, of the waiting and the expectation that comes with Messiah, the one that we know as Jesus Christ. And so for the month of December, we're starting a new series for the next five weeks, and we're going to dive into this idea of expectation, of waiting, of longing, of hope. And more specifically, we're going to be spending time with specific uh, people from the Christmas story. But this morning, I want to spend a little bit more overview time with the people of God, the, the, the nation of Israel. You see, for us, Christmas truly comes every year. Christ has already arrived. He, in fact, he's already lived and died, and he's resurrected. And now we get to partner with him in the kingdom. But that's not always the way things were. It's easy for us to miss the wonder and the mystery and the longing and the waiting and the expectation that, that this originally surrounded the arrival of the Messiah. And so I want you to consider with me just for a moment, what's the longest time you ever had to wait for something in your life? I waited 45 seconds to come out. And that was, did it feel like it forever for you guys? I did for me. Like I, my heart's beating more than a normal. I'm like, this is, I know everyone's squirming in their seats. What is the, the longest that you have ever had to wait in your life for something? Maybe a few years, maybe for the seasoned among us, maybe a few decades. For the collective people of God, they had been waiting for Messiah to come for 500 or more years, waiting for God to act. What would it look like for you to be waiting for something for that long? A story and a hope that's passed on from generation to generation without being fulfilled. And so I ask again, what is the, the longest time you've ever had to wait for something? The people of God waited for centuries. And so before we come to Christmas, to Advent, to the arrival, we need to understand, journey back 2,000 years, what was it like to be waiting for the Messiah? And so to set the stage, those of you who are history buffs, who love history, who love listening, it's teaching, I'm, I'm going to be some teaching today of some things that, that happened. We're going to talk through some historical events to set the stage for this series this morning. Sound good? All right, so let's start with the exile. The exile, this was a time in the people of God. They, they, there's a, there's a his, historied a story. But they come to this moment in, in, in our Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, where they have been disobedient and unfaithful to the covenant to God the Father. And him, as a grieving father, lets them now experience the consequences of their actions. And they will be sent out into exile. 
And from that point on, they'll never be able to to rule themselves again. They'll be dominated by foreign powers, taken to their places, allowed to come back, but but not having their own government and, and, and rulership, their own king, except for maybe a short period of 80 years that we'll talk about in a few minutes. And it's at this moment, before the first exile, before Israel's hopes were were crushed, that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, has this prophecy to share from Isaiah 9, starting in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He's saying there will be one to come who will bring peace and justice and to rule a kingdom that will know no end but first. You will experience the consequences. You will be exiled. Thus begins 700 years of hardship for the people of God. And yes, God was with them in that time. And he did works that we can read in the the prophets and uh, the second half of, of our Old Testament. But things were never the same for the people of God. Rulers came and they went. They Generations lived and passed. There was even a revolt led by a man named Judas Maccabeus who, who actually successfully overthrew for, for 80 years. There was the Hasmonean dynasty where the Jews had some semblance of a kingdom again. And then the Romans came in from Babylon to Assyria to now the Romans. They're being ruled over and they're still longing for this Messiah figured. And it, it is in 63 BC that the Roman general Pompey came and captured Jerusalem, even walking into the sacred holy of holies, desecrating it. Israel was under Roman rule now. And with that came one more form of oppression. As Americans, we are not familiar with oppression. We were founded on the idea of revolution, of overthrowing those who are oppressing us, and we have been a world power ever since. We cannot... In our experience of this, this world, this life, this culture, really truly resonate with what it would have been like for centuries of oppression, for, for empires to rule over us. And the, the Romans ruled with fear. They, they would let you do whatever you want as long as you played by their rules. Don't disrupt the peace, pay taxes, honor the emperor. And if you don't, we're going to come in and we're going to mess you up. And it was common under Roman occupation that even when the slightest rebellion or pushback would happen or appear, the Romans would would come and they would punish people. And this Roman punishment would come in the form of oftentimes crucifixion. A group of people would would cause some trouble and Roman soldiers would round up those people and others, oftentimes innocents, and they would crucify them on the sides of the road so that when people were walking to and from towns, they would be reminded that don't mess with the Romans. This was the environment, the experience of the Jewish people before the coming of Christ. 
And this is actually the practice that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24 and Luke 17 when he says, one will be taken and the other will be left behind. Unlike the poor theology behind the rapture, it's actually a good thing to be left behind. The Romans would come and take someone and crucify them. If you were left behind, you were lucky because you were not being judged, punished by the Romans. This is what will happen to you if you keep resisting peace at the edge of the sword. And, and the Jewish people had certainly become troublemakers. It's estimated that uh, 10 to 12 Jewish messianic movements happened 100 years before Jesus and 100 years after Jesus. We have historical documentation of this, of attempted and failed messiahs. N.T. Wright, a New Testament theologian, he says that there's always three parts. One, the initial proclamation of a messiah to say, I am the one who's going to come and overthrow the Romans or whoever is oppressing us. And then there's the expected uh, battle, the victory, the actual overthrow. And then there's the waiting in between. And this is the pattern that messiahs would always come with. Proclamation, waiting in expectation for the fulfillment and the overthrow, in this case, of the Romans. Fulfillment, waiting in expectation. It starts with proclamation. And with centuries of this exile and oppression, it isn't surprising the Jewish people had lots of expectations in their waiting. They, they expressed it in different ways. And so a few of those ways, there's at least four dominant sects. I told you I was going to get into the weeds. There's four dominant factions of Jewish belief and how should we handle this oppression of the Romans. The first were the zealots. The zealots and and. and they wanted Rome to be overthrown. And they would go about that by assassinating Roman soldiers and Roman leaders, and they would go about that violently. They expected a military Messiah who would overthrow the Romans. Their role model was Jewish Maccabeus, who had done it a couple decades earlier. The second faction were the Essenes, and they thought that Jerusalem had become corrupt, and so they decided that they needed to get away out into the wilderness. There were wilderness wanderers who retreated, and they focused on separate lives of holiness. It's, it's possible that John the Baptist was one of these people. They hoped for a military messiah, some of them, but most of them hoped for a spiritual and priestly reformer who would make things right spiritually with the people. Then we find the third faction, which was the Pharisees, the one that we're probably more familiar with if you've spent any time in the New Testament. The Pharisees were, were they believed that the law must be kept if the messiah was going to come. And so they, they were this legalistic faction who was all about the rules and keeping holiness and all these kinds of things. They expected a spiritual reformer who would only come if, if faithfulness was kept and, and that he would also, as he came, also bring in a physical kingdom and overthrow the Romans. And finally, the Sadducees, the, the fourth one, they, they only believed in the first five books of Scripture, the, the Torah, the, uh, and there is very few, if any, messianic prophecies in the first five books. And so they didn't even believe in a Messiah. They didn't think anyone was coming to save them, so they compromised. They said, we're going to, to, to do whatever we need to do in Greek and Roman culture to capitulate and to compromise 
War, withdrawal, repentance, and compromise. These were the different ways that they were trying to cope with their situation historically, waiting for the Messiah as they were violently oppressed for centuries. And so we've set the stage for what God's people are experiencing and feeling. We love a good prophecy. They're in so many of our stories, our films, our, the books we read. For example, this is a, a prophecy from one of my favorite parts of literature. All that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither, deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. And for the super nerds in there, that is a prophecy of Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings. And every time I read it, I just get chills. If you didn't get chills, then that's okay. You're probably just not a nerd. But uh, these prophecies of someone who's going to show up and change things and restore things to the way they should be. The coming king. The Messiah. And so we've set the stage of what it might have been like in those early centuries with some intellectual thoughts. But I want to challenge you as we continue on. I want to do an exercise together. Imagine with me that you are a, a Jewish individual in the first century and you're gathered around a fire with your Jewish friends and, and maybe family. And the latest uh, Roman overreach has happened and maybe a friend has died at the hand of Roman uh, soldiers' abuse and you're talking around the fire, reminiscing and, and hoping and dreaming. They're bringing up the story, the story that you've been living into, that you want to cling to. These are some of the promises that might be brought up around the fire. Let's put ourselves in their shoes because we are the continuation of their shoes. You might hear the first messianic promise that is present subtly in Genesis. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The Messiah is the one who will come and crush the serpent for good, ending suffering, in this case, at the hands of the Romans. Or maybe you would have heard them reminiscing on God's covenant promise to King David, where he says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise you up. Uh, raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. May Messiah come. Would Messiah come in the line of David, and may his throne be established forever. When will Messiah come and help us, save us, literally bring salvation from the Romans? Or maybe they'd recite another prophecy of Isaiah 
A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. Skipping down, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water uh, covers the sea. This is what will happen when Messiah comes. He will be full of the Spirit, bringing justice and righteousness, establishing a a lasting peace that all may come to knowledge of the Lord. Lord, would you come, Messiah, come and save us from our Roman overlords. They may have shared the, the words of Daniel's prophetic vision when he was in Babylonian exile, the first exile. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached me. The ancient of days was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. May Messiah come and rule righteously over the nations of the world that all may worship him in a kingdom that will never end. Lord, when will you come? When will this oppression cease? And maybe, just maybe, they would share the final prophecy from the the last prophet in the Hebrew scriptures, the Italian prophet uh, Malachi. Just kidding, it's Malachi. In Matthew three, uh, Malachi 3.1, God promises, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. May Messiah come to those who are seeking him, who desire him, who want him. The messenger is coming. The messenger of the covenant Lord, when will you send this messenger? When will the violence cease? When will you make good on your promises? When will you restore Israel to what it should be? Lord, when? How long? Oh, Lord. And these are just a few of numerous other promises that would have been shared regularly, daily, to cope with the experience on the ground of being oppressed by the Romans. Daily questions, as the psalmist would say, how long, O Lord? The Romans are ruling us, but it will not always be this way. God will come. And make things right. And the wrestling would be whether or not to to trust that, to believe that, when for generations it's not been true. This is the expectation of the first Christmas. 
This is the world into which Christ came. This is the hope we celebrate and the story that we are a part of. That we often forget when we celebrate our cultural Christmas every year. Over the next few weeks, we'll be building off of this foundation. Looking at the perspectives of people like Zechariah, of Mary, of the world in general, and finally uh, Anna. What were their expectations? What were their longings? How did they react when they found that Messiah would come? And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to suggest a few invitations for each of us. What does it mean for us to be expectant? What does it mean for us to be faithful in the waiting? To recapture the expectation that first century Jews would have had? There's a pattern that we see, uh, that we'll see in the coming weeks and that we see in, in the faithful ones throughout all of the scripture. Uh, three parts that we'll unpack when it comes to these expectations. The first one is, is to name your expectation. The second is to submit your expectation. And the third is to wait on God in the unexpected. So let's unpack that as we close uh, this morning. The first is to name your expectation. The truth is we all have them. We all have longings. We all have expectations. We may not be waiting for a Messiah for hundreds of years, but we are waiting for something. And it is in the Christmas season that we can get in touch with those longings, with those things that we are waiting for. And so I have three questions, really the same question in three different ways that I want you to think about deeply this morning and this week. What are you waiting for? What are you expecting and what are you longing for? What are you waiting for? What are you expecting and what are you longing for? What, what, what are you waiting for this Christmas season? Maybe for that special someone to ask you that question or for the marriage that's already set to come. Maybe for the acceptance letter of a new school or a new job. Or for those test results to come back after you went to the doctor. What are you expecting? Maybe you're expecting that life should be easier than it is. And you're expecting things to be better. I, I've faithfully followed. What? God, I'm expecting that things are just going to get better. Maybe you're expecting to grow when you haven't in a long time. Expecting someone to apologize to you for that one thing they did a long time ago, but you've never reconciled. Expecting simply things to be different than they are. What are you longing for this morning, this season? Maybe you're longing for that decades-long addiction to break. The habits that you've been stuck in for so long and you're just longing for things to change, to experience salvation from these things. Longing for justice to be served in some way. Longing for a more fulfilling occupation 
in a job that you're drowning in and that you hate? What are your longings? Have you long for your marriage to mean something again? For that child who left the faith to come back, to know Jesus again? What are you longing for? Give, your permi- give yourself permission to name that thing. You see, if we cannot name our desires and expectations before God, we will not experience the fulfillment or transformation of those desires. We'll miss it. Which leads us to our second invitation this morning, to submit your expectation to God. To submit your expectation to God. Ron Rodheiser says this, that spirituality is ultimately about what we do with our desire, what we do with our longings, both in terms of handling the pain and the hope they bring us. That is our spirituality. What are you doing with your longings and your hopes and your expectations? Are you shoving them down and not feeling them, not naming them? Or are you on the other end letting them consume you that you can see nothing but the disappointment in your life, an unfulfilled expectation? The invitation this morning and always is to submit that expectation to God. Are you willing to submit it to God, to turn it in, to hand it over to him? to let go of what, that might, what might come of it, of what might happen, to surrender the outcome to God. History and scripture is full of people who named their desires but failed to turn them over to God in true holy expectation. Do you wanna end up like the Pharisees who missed it by this much? They were all about repentance, but they missed Jesus. Do you wanna end up like the Essenes who, who gave up and withdrew or the Zealots who wanted a war and got it and Jerusalem was wiped out in 70 AD or, or like the Sadducees who just compromised and gave in to culture? What if you holding on to your desires and expectations is the very thing preventing you and us collectively as a community from God being able to grant them to come in power and do something new? What if you were so focused on your version of the outcome that you're missing something even better right in front of your face? This is the spirit of Christmas, of Advent, of the King's arrival in a a manger, of the coming Messiah in unexpected ways. So we name it and we submit it and we finally wait on God for the unexpected. We wait on God for the unexpected. No matter how long that we have waited or will wait, God has waited longer. He has waited all eternity for things to come to fruition. Eternity came in the form of a little baby. And so we are in good company when we wait. The God of all creation is no stranger to waiting. The invitation is to get our strength in the waiting from the one who waited to save us. 
in that first century Jewish town of Bethlehem. Isaiah later says in, in chapter 40, one of the verses that's on our walls, you know, Hobby Lobby, those kinds of things, but those who hope, who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Are you willing to wait on the Lord? Even if you don't see his promises come to fruition in your lifetime, are you willing to wait faithfully and hand it off to the next generation? You see, it's in the waiting that God does the work. It's in the waiting that God does the work. There's something something that we hate about waiting, but it's something that transforms us. Even when we feel like God is silent, he is never inactive. He is always working and holy expectation requires trust that God will work all things out in the end. And he comes in unexpected ways. So the invitation as we begin this journey, this Christmas journey, this Advent journey is to enter into God's waiting, into God's expectation, into God's longing to bring ours to his. Psalm 40 says that I waited patiently on the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Will that be you this morning? And so that's exactly what we're gonna do. We're gonna sing a new song this morning as we enter into this expectant season of waiting, a hymn of praise to our God. And the opening lyrics go like this. Children weep no more. Hope is on the horizon. Do you believe that in your life? Do you believe that hope is truly on the horizon for whatever you're facing? Weary world, behold your promised Messiah. See, we have the advantage of of knowing what happened in the perspective of history that Messiah has come in Jesus. And he wants to wait with us. His spirit waits for us. We might trust him. And so let's stand this morning. Let's stand and let's sing this this new song. Before God and before one another, let's stand and let's celebrate the goodness of our God as we wait in in hopeful expectation for the things that are to come and celebrate the things that have already been done in Jesus' name.